Father God, would you speak to us now, we pray. As we read these words, which in many ways seem foreign and alien to us. Help us to see that these are your words to us. Help us to see that these are words that we should pay attention to. And Lord, we ask that by your spirit, you would be shaping us and transforming us and changing us as we hear the voice of the Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're talking about judgment this morning, and I thought, what better way to uh, lift the mood of the room than to begin by, with an open, opening illustration about death. Let's talk about death for a moment. Now, there's something that I do, and I suspect that many of you do too, when you hear about death. You see, whenever I hear about a death that is perhaps unexpected and a little bit too close to home, for example, if I hear about in the news someone drowning at a local beach, or if I hear that someone in a nearby suburb has been murdered, I instantly need to know more. I start asking questions. Who were they? What happened? How did they die? Now, I think part of that is just our curiosity. It's, it's unusual, it's interesting, we want to know more, but I think there's actually something else going on. There's another dynamic at play. Fear. I ask questions because I want to work out how that person is not like me. I want to know that I don't fit the description. I want to think that what happened to them won't happen to me. So when I hear in the news about someone drowning at Sunshine Beach, uh, I want to know, was it nighttime? Were they drinking? Could they not swim? Were they from another country? Did, did they have some medical episode that caused them to drown? How is that person not like me? Because the moment I hear about a 35-year-old male who was fit and healthy and a strong swimmer drowning, I start to get nervous. That's when we start to think it could have been me. The same goes for a murder. You might hear in the news that someone has been killed and instantly you want to know. Which postcode? Was it, was it in a nice suburb? Or was it you know, one, of, one of those places? Was this victim somehow responsible? Were, were they involved with criminals? Was it a drug deal? We want to know. Tell me how that person is unlike me so that I can sleep easy tonight. But when you hear of someone being murdered in an unprovoked attack, in their own home, in a nice place like Noosa, well, it's then that you start to realise it could have been me. Well, today we're looking at Amos chapter 5 and the opening words of this text inform us of a death. Have a look in your Bibles, Amos chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. Hear this word, Israel, this lament I take up concerning you. Fallen is virgin Israel, never to rise again, deserted in her own land, with no one to lift her up. 
You see, Amos 5 is a funeral lament. It's the announcement of a death. And the name on the death notice is none other than God's very own beloved daughter, Israel. Here in this passage, Amos is addressing the people of Israel and he's telling them, he's beginning by telling them of their own death. Fallen is virgin Israel never to rise again. You can just imagine how that sermon went down, can't you? Amos 5 is a message about death. But here's the thing. Our tendency will be to want to work out all the ways that Israel is not like us. We want to think that we don't fit this description. That what happened to them won't happen to us. But friends, God has given us Amos 5 as a warning. And because he loves us, he wants us to see what happened to them so that we can make sure that what happened to them doesn't happen to us. And so, friends, this morning, instead of asking questions to work out how this isn't us, we're going to pause, we're going to reflect, we're going to ask ourselves the question, could this be me? That's the question I want you to be asking yourself as we unpack what it is that killed Israel. Now, there's a few points on your outline. We're going to look this morning at the diagnosis, what it is that killed Israel. We're going to look at the prognosis, the the natural consequence of what killed Israel. But then we're going to finish by looking at the cure. But what is it that led to the death of God's people, Israel? What is it that provoked God to such anger that he pronounced judgment on his own people? Now, if you've been with us for these past few weeks, you'll have realized that we've only talked very generally about Israel's sin. This morning, we're getting specific. And at first glance, the thing that strikes us about Israel's sin is an ethical problem. They are neglecting justice. If you're here in the first week of this series, we got to chapter 2, where God first addresses his people Israel. And this is what he says, chapter 2, verse 6. He says, For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for, uh, for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground, and they deny justice to the oppressed. The first thing that God identifies in these people is injustice. They're unfair. They are oppressing people. The same thing's repeated in chapter 4. We looked at it last week. Uh, We kind of skipped over these verses, but in chapter 4 there's The beginning of chapter 4, Amos gathers essentially the ladies' fellowship of Israel. He gathers all these women together and he says this, Hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria. It's not a very flattering picture, is it? But that's how he addresses them. He says, You women who oppress the poor and crush the needy and then say to your husbands, bring us a drink. This is the picture we get of Israel. 
And so we get to chapter 5 and there's more of the same. Verse 7, there are those in Israel who turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground. Verse 10, there are those who hate the one who upholds justice in court and detests the one who tells the truth. Verse 11, you levy a straw tax on the poor and impose a tax on their grain. Verse 12, there are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Clearly, Israel has a problem with justice. The rich are taking advantage of the poor, the powerful are oppressing the weak. Justice is not done and God is not happy. Now, it's absolutely true that God hates injustice in our world. It is good for us to know, to remember, that God hates injustice in our world. He absolutely hates when rich Australians take advantage of poor Chinese and Bangladeshi workers. He absolutely hates when powerful corporations get away with theft and murder and the powerless suffer. God absolutely hates when the innocent are wrongly accused and when the guilty go unpunished and when justice is not done. God sees those injustices. He hates those injustices. But friends, the thing we must remember is that Amos is not written to governments. Amos is not written to corporations. Amos is not written to wider society. Amos is written to God's people. Now that means two things for us. Uh, Firstly, it means that the application of our study of these scriptures should not be to bash the government for their lack of justice or for us to point accusing fingers at anyone. There may be a time for that. I'm not saying we shouldn't encourage our government to do justice, but that's not what Amos should point us towards. Amos should have us looking at ourselves. Secondly, the fact that Amos's message is directed towards God's people should lead us to see that Israel's problem is not just an ethical one. It's a spiritual one. Oh, I think I had those up there. The thing that makes God so angry in Amos is not just that Israel are denying justice to the poor and oppressing the weak. That makes him angry. That makes them deserving of his wrath. But God is particularly angry because Israel are denying justice to the poor and oppressing the weak while they claim to be his people. That makes it far worse. It's not just that they are unjust, it's that they are unjust in the name of God. It's not just that they are oppressing the weak, They're oppressing the weak while claiming to belong to God. This is a religious problem. And all of Amos 5 actually points the finger at Israel's religion. It's their religion that is the problem. Now, to understand that, we need to understand something about the temple. 
Now, Back when God's people lived in a united kingdom, like under David and Solomon, the focus of Israelite religion was the temple, wasn't it? The temple in Jerusalem was the place that you could go to and meet with God. The temple in Jerusalem was the place where the priest could offer sacrifices for your sin. The temple was where you would come to worship. The temple was where you would come to gather for the great religious festivals. But after King Solomon's reign, God's people were divided. They were split into two kingdoms. You had the northern kingdom of Israel, that's the people Amos is talking to, and you had Judah, the southern kingdom. Now that created a headache for Israel because they still wanted to worship God, Yahweh, but their temple was in Judah and they didn't like Judah and Judah didn't like them. And so the question is, what what do you do when you want to worship God, but you've only ever worshipped God in a temple, and now you can't get to the temple? Well, one solution is to build another temple, and that's exactly what Israel did eventually. But in Amos' day, there's no other temple. Instead, what they had were these shrines, these sacred places all over the land where they would come to, to worship God. One of the places they would go was Bethel. Bethel means house of God. And Bethel was the place that Jacob was at when God appeared to him in that vision of the stairway from heaven. If you remember our series in Genesis. Bethel was the place where God gave Jacob the name Israel. And so Bethel was a significant place for God's people. It was the place where God blesses his people, where God establishes his people, where God gives life to his people. Another place they would go was Beersheba. Now, Beersheba was special because all three of the great patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they had all traveled through Beersheba, and all three of them in Beersheba had been given the assurance that God was with them. All three of them heard the voice of God saying, Fear not, for I am with you. And so Beersheba became the place where you were reminded, God is with me. The third place they would go was called Gilgal. Gilgal was the place where Israel's 40 years of wandering in the wilderness ended. They crossed the Jordan and they set up camp in Gilgal. And it was in Gilgal where the manna stopped and they ate real food for the first time in 40 years. Just imagine how good that would have been. It was in Gilgal where they consecrated themselves to God by being circumcised and they observed the Passover. All of that happened in Gilgal. And so Gilgal was the place where you were reminded that God was giving you the land as an inheritance. Israel didn't have a temple in Amos' day, but what they did have was these shrines where they would remember that God was their God, where they would remember God's promises to them and where they would go to worship God. The shrines became the focus of Israelite religion. 
And so you can imagine their reaction when Amos comes along in verse 5 with a message from God that says, do not seek Bethel. Do not go to Gilgal. Do not journey to Beersheba. For Gilgal will surely go into exile and Bethel will be reduced to nothing. It would be like me coming and telling you that God says to you, don't go to church and don't go to Bible study. It's all going to come to nothing. It would be a crazy thing for me to say. I'm not saying it, just to be clear. But God says it to his people. He says, don't go to the shrines. Don't go to the places where you go to worship me. They're nothing. They're dead. Israel's religion is empty. And the evidence that their religion is empty is that their religion isn't changing them. (laughs) They're behaving just like every other nation. In fact, worse than some of the other nations. And so God's point to them is, what good is it for you to praise me and then go away and oppress the poor that I love? (laughs) What good is it to offer sacrifices to me while you grow rich at the expense of others? What good is it for you to go to church on Sunday, but then to not have that change the way you live on Monday? Here's Amos' diagnosis. Israel is very religious, but they've put God out of the picture. They have pursued a religion without God. Now that sounds crazy, but that's not a problem that's unique to Israel, is it? Because, friends, we can easily do the same. Brothers and sisters, it is entirely possible to be religious without having any relationship with God. It's entirely possible to make something else the focus of your religion. And there's people that have done that all all over the world, in every age. It might be church. Church could be the focus of your religion, and yet that can have nothing to do with a relationship with God. The, The things that you do, your acts of service, they could be the focus of your religion, and yet that could have nothing to do with God. Unless God himself is the focus of your religion, it's worthless. It cannot change you. It will not benefit you. That's the diagnosis for God's people in Amos' day. And here in Amos 5, we see what happens when you pursue religion without God. What's the prognosis? What happens when you pursue religion without God? Well, first of all, you pursue religion without God, you you don't align yourself with God's priorities. If you push God out of the picture, well, you don't care what he loves or what he hates. You forget that God is a God of justice. You ignore that God is a God of love. And so your religion becomes harsh and unloving and uncaring because it becomes self-serving. You do what Israel did and you turn a blind eye to injustice. You ignore the cries of those who need help. 
Friends, take God out of the picture and religion will inevitably become harsh and cruel and unloving. And you've seen that around the world, haven't you? You don't have to look hard to see the damage that has been done by those who are very religious but who do not love God. Secondly, when you pursue religion without relationship, well, you allow other things to creep in and to rival God in your life. You start to look for other things to give you security, to other things to give you blessing. And that's what Israel was doing. They actually started to look to money for their security. We're told that they loved money more than God. In chapter 8, we'll see Amos rebuke them, where he says they're sitting there on the Sabbath and all they're thinking about, they're longing for the Sabbath to end so that they can get back to work. They can get back to their business. They can get back to making money and ripping people off. Money became more important to them than God. That's what happens when you push God out of your religion. Push God out of the picture and you'll look to other things to worship. That's what Amos rebukes the Israelites for here in verse 26. He says, you have lifted up the shrine of your king, the pedestal of your idols, the star of your God, which you made for yourselves. You see, the Israelites, alongside their worship of God, they also started worshipping other gods. They started to worship local Assyrian gods, the god of the stars. And the irony for Israel is that while they go and worship Assyrian gods, well, God says that he's going to send the Assyrian army to punish them for it. When you pursue religion without God... You fail to be shaped by his priorities. When you pursue religion without God, you allow other things to rival him for your devotion. And finally, when you pursue religion without God, you cut yourself off from the only source of life. Did you hear what God thinks of Israel's religion? Have a look at verse 21. He says, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring uh, choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs, I will not listen to the music of your harps. Can you just imagine God saying that about our church services? Away, stop, make it stop, it's awful. I hate it. That's what God's saying to his people. They are very religious, and yet God hates it. Because you can have all the religion in the world. You can sing and dance and sacrifice. You can pray and fast and tithe. You can know all the things that God has done. You can recall all the things that God has promised. And yet all of that can count for nothing. All the religious practice in the world will mean nothing 
unless you allow the God that you profess to worship to change you. Now, Israel refused to change. They liked the idea of belonging to God. They liked the peace and security that that brought them. They loved God's blessings, but they didn't want God. They weren't ready to bow their knee and call him Lord. And so God's message for them is that his judgment is coming. He announces their death. He says there will be mourning and crying. You will be defeated. You will be carried off into exile. Israel has rejected God. Now, friends, it's not just an Israelite problem, isn't it? And when Jesus came along in Matthew 7, he warns us of the same thing. He says, not anyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not... Uh, prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name proclaim uh, perform many miracles then i will tell them plainly i never knew you away from me you evildoers friends if you're pursuing a religion without god you can be doing all the most amazing things for him But if you do not obey him, if you are not devoted to him, you do not belong to him. God will judge those who claim to belong to him, but who refuse to be changed by him. And so friends, it's time for us to ask ourselves the question. If you're someone who claims to belong to God, I want you to ask yourself, What difference has that made? Is your life different because you trust in Jesus? Put it another way. Does going to church on Sunday have any meaningful impact on how you go about your life on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday? Now, let me be clear here. I don't want to create for ourselves a religion of works. Your salvation does not depend on your moral performance. But if your faith doesn't burden you with the desire to change, if your relationship with God doesn't create in you a sense of godly dissatisfaction with sin, if your religion isn't renewing you, you have to ask yourself, what exactly it is that you are putting your faith in. Friends, what killed Israel? Religion without God. We've seen the diagnosis. They are very religious, but they do not seek God. We've seen the prognosis. It leads only to injustice and to oppression and to death. But friends, I want to finish by showing you that there is hope. Because did you notice that even in this funeral lament, Amos holds out the possibility of life? 
He's announcing the death of Israel, and yet even as he's preaching in a room full of coffins, he's holding out the option of life. Did you see it? How do we make sure our religion isn't empty and worthless? Verse 4, this is what the Lord says to Israel, seek me and live. Don't seek empty religion. Don't seek sacrifices. Don't seek uh, ceremonies. Seek me and live. In case they missed it, he says it again in verse 6. Seek the Lord and live. And you see, the solution to Israel's empty religion isn't less religion. It's rightly focused religion. It's a religion that doesn't have the temple as its focus. It doesn't have Bethel or Gilgal or Bathsheba as its focus. It doesn't have sacrifices or songs or services as its focus. It has God as its focus. Seek the Lord and live. Friends, hear this word this morning. Examine what it is that your religion is focused on. Because it's entirely possible that you can make this church the focus of your religion. You can make the way that we do church here the focus of your religion. And then some young punk minister will come along and change the style of the service and you'll leave bitter and angry. You can make the people that you meet here the focus of your religion. That's wonderful that we are a community, that we are a family, that you make friends here. Do that. But if if the people here are the focus of your religion, the day that they leave is the day that your religion goes down the toilet with it. If the focus of your religion is on the things that you do, you'll become proud, you'll become self-righteous. Friends, the only meaningful religion, the only religion that offers you any hope is a religion where you allow God himself to change you. It's a religion where God himself is your longing. Seek the Lord and hear the promise, you will live. Let me pray. Father God, we pray that you would remove in us any sense of empty, worthless religion. Help us see the folly of focusing our attention on anything else in the periphery other than you. And Lord, we pray that you yourself would be the one that we seek. We pray now as we go out that we would go out longing to have relationship with you. We pray that as we go about our weeks, we would live desiring your approval. We pray that in everything that we do, we would do it as an act of worship of you. And we pray that it will be you yourself that shapes us and changes us so that we might become more and more like you in the image of our Saviour Jesus. Father, enable us to seek you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.